So we have uh, been in this series in Jonah for a few weeks. We didn't come up with a snazzy title for the series, so it's simply called Jonah. But the theme throughout has been salvation. I talked for the first week about how Jonah is a story of salvation. What God is intending for Jonah is that he's employed and involved in a work of salvation that God has planned for a people called the Ninevites. And I spoke about how the Ninevites were a particularly uh, evil people. In fact, probably one of the most evil empires imagined through history, how their practices were barbaric in every way imaginable. And how God called Jonah to speak to these people, just these people. And because of his, potentially his fear of them in part, And his desire also that God not be merciful to them, he ran away. He did exactly the opposite thing that he was called to do as a prophet of God. Instead of running toward them to deliver a message of judgment and salvation, he ran away. And last week we talked about how uh, that landed Jonah in a significant storm. And we talked about how that's not just something that Jonah gets involved in, but every one of us as followers of, well, well, let me take a step back. Everyone of us humans is involved in storms. That's what it is, partly to be human, is to be subject to forces beyond ourselves. To be a human is to be finite, to be limited, to die and to experience chaos and disorder all about us at times. uh, And sometimes it feels like all the time. But also to be a follower of Christ is to be somebody who isn't rescued uh, in the sense of protected always from the storms, but who has the confidence that God is with them in the midst of the storms. We talked about how for some of us at times in our lives, those storms are actually a consequence of decisions we've made. And God's discipline in the midst of those storms is designed to, to show us his mercy, that we would turn away from what we were turning toward and turn toward him. And we talked about how actually a lot of times, most times, the storms are a consequence of just the broken and fallen world that we all inhabit. But that God is there speaking peace. He's with us and he's working for us in the midst of every storm. Do you remember any of that? Okay. All right. I I had to look over the sermons to remember it myself. Now, we left Jonah and these sailors on this ship and they were right on the brink of disaster. And what was Jonah doing? You remember in verse six, he'd fallen asleep. Not just into any sleep, but what's described in the text as a deep sleep, a comatose state. And I told you that the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible inserts the fact here that Jonah was snoring. So Jonah's gone deep, deep down into the heart of the ship and he's fallen asleep. He is no use to anyone and the ship is threatening to break up. Ship's about to become a nervous wreck. And my question this morning, because we are looking at salvation, my question is this, what is it possible for God to salvage from this situation? What, if anything, could God bring from a situation as desperate and dark as this one? And the answer, to just ruin all of the sort of preaching tension that you're meant to sort of store up and then deliver at the end like a rabbit in a hat, the answer, as we will see, 
to the question, what can God salvage from this situation, is this. Absolutely everything. We see today that Jonah, that not only will God save Jonah, his disobedient prophet, but he's also going to save the sailors. And through Jonah, he's going to save the Ninevites. I've been journeying in the last couple of weeks with a, a phrase. That's such a cultural word, journeying. What's that even mean? That's just nonsense. It's just an empty phrase. I've been living with an idea, a phrase in my mind. And the phrase is simply this. It's taken from Jesus' teaching. Uh, Jesus himself says, uh, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Nothing's impossible with God. Today, what I want you to to see, I I actually really don't care if, I don't even know or care if this sermon's any good, but what I really want you to see is this, that with God, all things are possible. With God, salvation is possible for the person you think least capable of receiving salvation. I I want you to see that God is able to salvage to rescue, to heal and restore the part of your life that is most broken. That he's able somehow to pick it up and to dust it off and to repurpose it, to salvage it. And that he has a plan to do it and he will do it, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And yet, that there is a job for you. There is a role for you. Salvation is never passive. So what we're going to look at today is the two sides of salvation, the human side and the divine side. Is that okay? Yeah. All right. So how is God going to do this? How's going to bring, how's he going to bring about this remarkable salvation? Well, first of all, he has to get to Jonah. And to get to Jonah, he has to wake Jonah up. We read from verse 7, Then the sailors said to each other, having woken Jonah up. Let's go from verse six. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he'll take note of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lots fell on Jonah. Come, let us cast lots to find who is responsible Whenever there's a tragedy, whenever there's something that happens in our, our public imagination, in our, in our country or globally, the question we are led to ask is this one, isn't it? Who's responsible? There must be somebody to blame. And usually there's some kind of, depending on the size and the scale of the tragedy, uh, there's usually sometimes there's an inquiry judicial review or something similar because we want to know as humans we want to know the answer to that question now typically in our culture at least we wait until the the thing is over before we begin the review and yet here we see the captain and the sailors beginning to engage in a full inquiry as to what's gone on and how it's happened in the midst of the storm clearly aiming to avert the tragedy Come, let's cast lots to find out who is responsible. They want to find some kind of solution. They're looking to see if there's anybody who will take responsibility. 
And so they cast lots. This is a very common thing to do in this culture. It seems sort of based on chance for us, and yet God is clearly willing to go with it. In fact, in the New Testament too, when they're uh, picking uh, the, the replacement for Judas, they also do this. This is like something that you would do to discern the will of God. And here they are doing that, praying to their gods. Jonah, uh, at this point, is awake. He's awake. But what we find is he's, he's awake, but he's far from willing to take responsibility at this point. He's still not willing, really, to take on board, no pun intended, his responsibility. Remember the story. He's a prophet of God, and he's been called to a particular thing. She's to go and preach the, the, the message of repentance and salvation to the Ninevites, and he's been completely unwilling to do it. And there's good reason to have sympathy for him. He's been asked to do the impossible job. Like a rabbi asked to go and preach in the midst of Nazi Berlin to the Gestapo. He knows that if he's going to do this, he's going to do this at risk of his own life. It is a tremendously difficult commission given to him. We must have sympathy for him. And yet we don't see in Jonah an attitude of responsibility taking. We see that Jonah is shirking his responsibility, not just in his response to God, but even beyond that. We see three times in the first few verses, the first five, five verses alone, a threefold journey downward, a threefold descent. Here's what we read in verse three. Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard. Literally, it says there, he went down into the ship. And then we see the wind. And in verse 5, Jonah had gone below deck. Jonah had gone down into the heart of the ship where he lay down and fell asleep in a deep sleep. Do you see there's a descent of Jonah down, down, down? You remember I said in the first week, Jonah's been called by God to arise and preach the message. And actually his response has been exactly the opposite. He's gone down, down, and down. unwilling to take responsibility for what God has placed on his life. What Jonah needs is to wake up. If he's going to experience salvation, if he's going to be a a means of salvation for others, the first thing he has to do is to wake up. He's got to come out of his sleep. And for Jonah, it's the sleep of denial. Denying the Denying the magnitude of the call of God in his life. Maybe because it's too weighty. It's too difficult. He has to wake up. I said in the first week how similar this story is, the story of the the lost son, the prodigal son. You, You remember that, maybe some of you. There's a moment in that story of the prodigal son, the lost son, which is actually about a reckless, a prodigal father. And it says the son, the younger son, came to his senses. In the original language, it literally means he returned to himself. What remains for Jonah to do here is to return to himself, to come to his senses. That, folks, and here's the point. There is a point, usually. 
Here's the point. That is the genesis. That is the beginning of salvation, of rescue, a taking ownership, a recognition, a coming to your senses. Now, it never begins with the person. It never begins with man or woman. It begins with God. Salvation is all God's work, and yet here we are called, and Jonah is called to come to his senses. He has to respond. He has to step out of a place of passivity. Think about your own life for a minute. Those of you who are walking with Jesus, those of you who aren't, just listen in for a second. This might be interesting to you. Your journey with God began at some stage with some kind of an awakening. We use that word, don't we? Some kind of an awakening to the reality of God. But it might have begun actually before that when a reality, uh, a waking up, if you like, to the depth of reality. You know, we live in our culture with such a shallow vision of reality. We think reality is this deep. It's basically reality. And this is what our culture says. It's a culture of materialism. That simply means that we believe that matter is all that there is. And what happens, what needs to happen for us to develop a spiritual life, a life before God, is we need to consider the possibility that reality is not this thick. It's this thick. That there's a lot beneath the surface. And just because I can't see it, it doesn't mean it isn't real. That has to happen. That has to happen for us. We need to wake up. And often that begins with the kind of questions that we're going to be asking at Alpha. Questions like, is there really more to life than this? And often we get to that point because we've got everything we ever wanted. And we realize it's just hollow. That's not hollow. It's dense. But, you know. (laughs) Where's the prop department in this church? When do we get a prop department? Write down prop department, love. Well... Start working on that. Jonah needs to move from passive, passiveness to active inquiry. He's got to wake up. We have a real problem in our culture in this, just this area at the moment. Because actually, what I'm observing, and I say I'm observing as if I came up with everything I'm about to share with you, I stole it all from a chap called Michael Ramsden who will speak far more eloquently on it than I will. But we are developing a a culture, a theme, a stream in our moral culture which you might describe as a a victim culture, a victim mentality, a victimhood culture. Now I just want to very quickly uh, describe what that is to you. And I'm doing that really from something that I saw uh, in the news recently. A lady called Jenny McCartney who writes... This. I think we have um, some of this quote on the screen. In such an era, she's following on obviously from what she's been saying, the rise of victimhood culture, microaggressions, safe spaces in the new culture wars by the US sociologist Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning makes for fascinating reading. The thrust of their analysis is that an honour culture in which men in particular were easily offended and provoked to fighting as a means of guarding their reputation, for example, through duels fought over perceived slights, widely gave way to a more pragmatic and constructive dignity culture in which people were encouraged to ignore verbal insults. Okay, let me just explain what you've just read or heard me reading. 
What this author is saying, this writer is saying, is that there's a piece of research that was done by two American sociologists, and it charts two different cultures that we see in our historical, uh, in our history. The first is a is a honor shame culture, uh, and that means that if I am if I'm offended. Uh, which means that if, if my honour is Im- impeached or encroached, I must respond in an honour-shame culture to taking back my honour. And because my honour has been impinged upon publicly, I've got to do that publicly. So if you dishonour me in public, steal something from me, or, or I don't know, you say something negative about Manchester City, John, if you do that, John... <laughs> I'm going to come and I'm going to regain my honour. And I've got to do it publicly, so I'm going to challenge you to a duel, John. (laughs) And I've been training, so you better be worried. So that's what an honour culture does. Now, this still exists in our culture. We see this in gangs. The reason we have an issue with knife crime is because our young men live in an honour-shame culture. And they think that the only way to deal Uh, with people are being murdered over the most minute slights imaginable because it's this culture at play. The only way to deal with a a minor, a minor offence is to to respond with aggression. Jenny McCartney says, or the sociologist actually, they say that the second option is a dignity culture. We moved to this, largely speaking, in the last century. And that's where you, you essentially say, well, if my honour, if my dignity is publicly, uh, if I'm offended publicly, I'm going to respond in a dignified way. And this is very British, by the way. We'll quietly, quietly perhaps go and speak to the person or we'll just take it on the chin. Because what is important here is that I retain my dignity. Okay? You, you see that, Right? Typically, what you see in these cultures is a strong judicial, a strong court, a strong legal system, which will deal with stuff that's too big for us to deal with ourselves. Are you with me? You're sort of tracking where we're at. Okay, so we've got an honor culture, a dignity culture. Dignity culture, she said, eschewed reactive violence, but sought judgment from a competent state for more serious matters. That's what I talked about there. The recent emergence of a victimhood culture, according to Campbell and Manning, is something quite new for society. It borrows the touchiness to perceived offence from honour culture, but retains the appeal to a higher power, for example, university authorities, that is characteristic of dignity culture. Its participants gain social status by emphasising victimhood, although only from within the groups that are historically viewed as oppressed. White males are not included. That isn't a plea to to be a victim here, by the way. So what the author is saying is that there is a new culture emerging. It's a victimhood culture. And you can gain social status in this culture by claiming victimhood. But the interesting thing about this is what the honor honor culture and the dignity culture have, and this is all you need to hear. If, If none of that was of any interest to you, just, you know, just switch your brain off for a second. Here's what you need to get. Both of those preceding cultures, the honor culture and the dignity culture, they function with the same idea at the heart of them, which is that if I am dishonored, if I'm offended, I take responsibility for the offense. And I can do something about it. Either I'll challenge John to a duel, 
or I will deal with the offense public, uh, pr- privately. What the victim culture does is something entirely different. It puts the responsibility onto a third party, often social media. It says, I've got this problem. I don't have the emotional resources to deal with it. You figure it out. And so we get internet shaming and all this other stuff which destroys people's careers in seconds. That culture, that victim culture, you may not have seen it yet. It is, it is there and it is coming. And we see it in all sorts of things, no platforming people. You know this thing where certain people are invited, is particularly prevalent in universities. People are invited to come speak on something in a university and just because there's a small group of people to whom their views are offensive, that person is not allowed to come and share their message anymore. This is a threat to free speech, yes. But more than anything else, the inability to take personal responsibility. I'm saying this morning, it is a threat to your spiritual growth. And it is a threat to salvation in that respect. That is why we should take it very seriously. Now, I'm not suggesting for a minute that Jonah was living in a victim culture. Far from it. But what he shares and we share is that this idea that we have to take responsibility. Blaise Pascal was a, a French mathematician and philosopher. He had a profound, he was a prodigy, he had a profound experience with God as a young boy. And he talked about, and this, I wanted just this phrase that he used to use, he said, God gives the dignity of causality, i.e. the dignity of, of choice. That each of us has the dignity of choice. I want to say this morning, your choice matters. Don't surrender your choice. Don't surrender your activity, your agency. Don't become passive in your own journey, in your own spiritual life, in your walk with God. Don't just, don't blame other people. It won't get you anywhere. So something about taking responsibility... Jonah gets there, he gets to this moment. Here is what we read. I am a Hebrew, he answered, verse nine. He answered their question. They just go through a litany of questions. Tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? This is like a proliferation of questions. And Jonah says, he answered, I'm a Hebrew. Hey, I'm gonna come clean. I'm ready to face the rap. I'm gonna take... I face the music, I'm going to take the rap. Cliche, cliche. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This moment is about Jonah stepping out of the shadows and acknowledging who he is. It's a key moment in salvation. Now, your list doesn't look like that. We're all different. But salvation begins when we say, this is who I am. This is all I am. I offer it completely. I'm not going to run from the truth anymore. I'm I'm not going to hide. I'm not going to deny it. This is just who I am. And really, for all of us, that will look like I'm Johnny. I'm a sinner. Do you know who gets this? 12-step groups. 
My name is Johnny. I'm an alcoholic. Next week. My name is Johnny. I'm an alcoholic. Next week. Same again. Same again. Why can't we do that in the church? Why do we feel we have to present an exterior, a facade? God won't. He will. God will honor. Sometimes he will honor the facade. Are you willing to break it down? Are you willing to take responsibility? Jonah goes further than just taking responsibility. He's willing to take remedial action. He's willing to make a change. He says to them, verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Now the men don't take his offer straight away, but eventually they do. Now Jonah's not giving up here. This isn't uh, his suicide mission at, at all. If Jonah wanted to do that, there'd be other ways far easier to have done that. He wouldn't be on the boat in the beginning. And this is Jonah in an act of taking ownership. And I think also for the first time being motivated out of love. He says, if you do this, this then, then there will be a calm for you. This is the first time Jonah's looked beyond himself. Stepped out of a position of blame and he just begins to see the other, begins to see the pagan sailors and their situation. He's caused it and he's willing to make a change. And they took Jonah and threw him overboard. <laughs> and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. What we see through Jonah's Coming to his senses, his taking ownership, his taking on responsibility for his part is salvation. It says the sailors, verse 16, the man greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. We have seen as Jonah has made his threefold movement, down, movement downward, the sailors have made a threefold ascent. In verse five, it says they feared the storm. In verse 10, it said, the men feared with great fear. And in verse 16, we read, read, the men feared with great fear the Lord. They've moved from fear of the storm to fear of the Lord. And somehow, Jonah's been a part of it. What can God save? Who can God save? The sailors. God can save the pagan sailors in the midst of the storm. God can save Jonah. We'll look at this a bit more next week, but Jonah is rescued. Rescued by this great fish that God sends to be his salvation. And Jonah shows us the pathway to salvation. As I've said, that, that involves, it begins with God moving in our lives such that we can own up, come to our senses and see the truth about who we are and who he is. And Jesus told his disciples, if any want to become my followers, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever would want to save their life, preserve their life, protect their life, will lose it. But whoever who is willing to lose their life for my sake will save it. I tell you, what will it profit 
a man or a woman, if they gain the whole world and forfeit their soul, what can a man give in return for his soul, his life? Jonah shows us that the way to life is in abandoned surrender to God. That there is no other way to life. The only way to life is through the deep end. And we can't micromanage God. We can't micromanage our salvation. It's total abandonment. That's the only way in. The doorway into the kingdom has surrender written on it. That's the way in. Surrendering what? Surrendering everything. Surrendering your ambition. Surrendering your career. Surrendering your hopes and your dreams, your aspirations. Surrendering your relationships. Surrendering the things that you think make you unique, i.e. your identity. Surrendering your desires. Surrendering your finances. Surrendering your sexuality. Surrendering every last thing. big it's like taking up a cross it's like denying yourself that's what Jesus says but whoever does that finds life there is life there is a rescue there is a a large fish waiting to gobble you up and you're like I don't like that idea (laughs) it'd be smelly in the fish I want to be clean. Surrender it. (laughs) Jonah points us, shows us the way to salvation, but Jonah points us to a greater salvation. You see, salvation really isn't about us. And I know I've spent roughly 30 minutes telling you your part in it. But you're not the most important part in your salvation. Not even close. The story of Jonah is about a God who is prodigal, reckless in his love and his abandoned pursuit of his people. Why doesn't, Jonah leave, why doesn't God leave Jonah for dead? I would. You little? How dare you disobey? You should, you should see what I'm like when my kids don't put their shoes on when I ask them to. <laughs> Let alone, you know, Jonah, my little minion, daring to disobey me. If I were God, oh, I would let Jonah have it. A storm. Oh, you watch, yes, a storm. You watch for the rest. The storm is designed to bring Jonah to a moment of salvation. It's designed for his rescue. He's not given up on his recalcitrant prophet. He has a plan to bring him back to life. To give him back his dignity. To give him back his mission. To give him back his place in history. He's got a plan for the pagan sailors. He loves them. He loves them with an unending love. He loves them with an undying love. And he has a plan for the Ninevites, those evil, barbaric empire builders. He wants to bring them to his mercy. He wants them to experience his love. He has a plan for you. 
And he has a plan for me and he has a plan for our city. And there are people in this city that are to come to salvation in our time. Who, you would number them amongst the Ninevites. And God has a plan. God has a plan for their salvation. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And how is he going to do it? The sign of Jonah is how he's going to do it. See, Jesus does perfectly what Jonah is only able to do temporarily. He brings salvation. Both men, Jesus and Jonah from Galilee, both knew the struggle of obeying God. Jonah, when he hears the word of the Lord in Jerusalem, Jesus, when he struggles to follow in the Garden of Gethsemane, both preached a message of judgment and reconciliation to sinners. Both chose death for the sake of others when the time came. Both went to death forsaken by others. Both bore and removed the consequences of sin from others. Both caused the storm to cease after sleeping through it. Jonah entered the jaws of the fish. Jesus entered the jaws of the grave. Jonah was kept for three days in the belly of the fish. Jesus for three days in the belly of the tomb. Jonah was released from the mouth of the fish. Jesus was released from the teeth of the tomb by the Father. Jonah's life led to the salvation of a city. Jesus' life led to the salvation of all who would receive him, Jew and Gentile throughout history. This, this is how salvation happens. It's not about principally, ultimately what we do. It's about what he's done for us. Jesus is the true Jonah. And there is no person here that he can't rescue. There is no part of your life he can't redeem. The question is this, will you surrender it to him? Will you? Will you offer him? The broken pieces. The broken people that you know. Will you lay it on an altar and will you trust him for the response? Yes, there's a part for us to play, but more than anything, it's a work that God does on our behalf. He does it through Jesus who died for our sins and is raised for our justification that we might become friends of God and sons and daughters of God and that we might go into Nineveh, modern day Nineveh, Nottingham to you and I, with a message of reconciliation that we might call his lost children to come home. Why don't we stand?